I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Tracy Morgan, a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City who works with individuals, couples, and groups. She is the founder, editor, and host of the award-winning podcast, New Books in Psychoanalysis, and serves on the faculty of the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Visit Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. You can visit our publisher's website, trapar.net, for more information. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. And as always, huge thanks to everyone at our Patreon community, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Thank you so much for your support. But just, just you know, sort of thinking about like the work in of new books in psychoanalysis, and um, you know, a, a four, I think a fourteen-year-old project, and every there's people who tr- can do interviews on books, um, psychoanalytic books, or book, you know, whatever history, philosophy, and they just turn them out and like, blah, 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 you know, and, and and for me, I'm like. Oh, three or four months. I'm like, you know, really like slow. I mean, I read each book like a lot and I have to read them. I have to read them each twice at least because, because the second time it's like a different book and that's kind of incredible. (laughs) So, um, you know, that is really kind of, it really gets, has really gotten me thinking. I mean, being an interviewer, host at New Books and Psychoanalysis has really revealed something to me about reading that is so obvious, but it really never was experientially obvious, you know, to me until I felt a responsibility, like I need to read this again because there's some things I didn't understand or what's really something eluded me or I have to re I have to reread a chapter, but then I have to reread the chapter before it because it led up to it. Then I might as well read the one after it. And and I found that I I I really um I think this might have first happened with um maybe a book by Patricia Garavici, Please Select Your Gender, which I found a really hard book for me to read. Really like it was like you know, sort of where she was going. I mean she was, you know, breaking ground and like introducing you know, concepts and ideas. Some of them I knew, some of them I didn't. It was also, I don't know when that book came out, long, eight years ago, something, I don't know. Um, you know, so it's just like a lot of new thinking about, you know, about trans and sort of wrapping the mind and the emotions and, you know, sort of sorting things through. And I was like, I have to read this book again. When I read it the second time, I was like, oh, this is a different book. It just was. And uh, I've always been reading them twice, but it, that was the first time I was like, what I read the first time, what I read the second time, I mean, obviously the transference to the text, um, you know, is, is, is there. And the second time around was the opportunity to have maybe a, to at least experience your transference while you're reading um, to the text and then try to um, 
understand, you know, how the transference opens or closes the text and to study your transference as you're reading. It's a really weird way of reading. Yeah, that's what makes sense too. Like the first time you read a book, you're just coming to the material with what you've already learned yes. um, and your your viewpoint from that. But then once you've read it and you reread it, now you're, you've added what you've learned from the book. So then you're going to pick up on new things based on what you've already learned that maybe you kind of missed or glossed over the first reading. You know? Yeah, there are things that like I, um, uh, you know, just... I didn't want to take in, you know, and I feel a responsibility to try and, you know, take in all the, to at least have a feeling that the material that's been presented is something I could, um, even if, 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 if I fail at it, at least I could, I could speak to and represent what it is I think I've read, you know, and so there's always parts in a book that, you know, some, some you like and some you're like oh skip that chapter (laughs) but I wouldn't want to skip the chapter you know because I want to understand the book as a total like it's like an album remember people used to make albums and they're like record you know but like I you know like from the 70s like albums you know the whole experience like you didn't listen to houses of the holy like just a little bit it was like the whole thing like it was the whole thing together. And when it came to an end, you'd had an experience with the album. And I, I think that um, that's how it is with reading um, for new books in psychoanalysis. Um, and also, you know, like when we started, when I started, I guess I started alone and then, you know, now there's a, a whole crew. But when I, when I started, I was like, nobody's doing this. I have to do a good job. You know what I mean? I was like, I was like, who else is anybody else interviewing analysts on the, you know, like this is you know, whatever on the internet, like about their publications. And I remember, you know, Vanessa trying to um, initially to coax analysts into speaking into the, into the atmosphere, the unknown atmosphere, the, you know, the ether of, you know, who anyone could tune in, um, you know, and, and that was, there was like emotional labor too. I remember that and trying, I mean, it's much easier now, you know, um, because people are, you know, used to sort of podcasts, et cetera. But then it was like, well, you know, can I edit it? No. You know, can I, can you go back and take stuff out? I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> and, and the, I'm sorry was like, not cause I, you know, I don't know, you know, I, if I think that's a good idea or not, but I, I was like, I just don't have the time or the equipment, you know, and like, this is it. So we're just going to run, you know, and we're going to, and you're going to say what you say. And, you know, and it's my job, it's my job to, to help you to, you know, to help every person I interview to um, not get, you know, to not get themselves into deep, into hot water too, a little bit. I'm a little bit, prote- I'm probably a protective interviewer in some ways, um, I think you know, unless I know the person's really super sturdy and I know them already, you know, maybe I don't take people on or I took Lou Aaron on once, but that was not, didn't even make it to the podcast because the audio was so bad. It was live when Lou was alive. And, but I knew he, I knew he could take it. He was like, he was such a durable person, you know, you push back at him and he pushed back, you know, (laughs) but sometimes you talk to strangers and you don't know, you know, I mean, I don't know, 
who they are and what they're what they're made of. Um, you know, when you because when you ask a, a question, you know, of why. I guess I always think that you know, that goes right to the ego, and it really can make people <laughs> decompensate. How do you be? How do you interview people without asking why? Right? I mean, I don't know if you think about that, but you know, the 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 question of why, if you can, if you put it to the side, it's very helpful, um, but demands something of the interviewer creatively. I think. Yeah, and I love not editing because I mean that's that's true to like the psychoanalytic principles, you know, that's why I like yeah. to just like not give people a place to start and just see where they start and follow it from there, you know, cause that's, that's what we do. It's like showing yeah. psychoanalysis, like a bit, yeah. not just talking about it. Yeah. 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 No, that's right. I mean, I, I, I appreciated it. I was like, like Oh, you're already going Bang, recording. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm more, you know, I'm, I'm warmed up and, uh, Happy to, God, happy to speak English. Let me just say, <laughs> being here in Italy, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's good. It's good to have um, some time to utilize the English language. And I think I'm still speaking it. So, you know, I don't know if that's an experience you're having too, of this like losing, losing aspects of, I feel like I'm losing aspects of English, um, but learning more aspects of something Latin, which is nice. Um, which sort of is strengthening to my English in another way. Maybe I'm losing like the sort of sloppy English. Um, we'll see. We'll, we'll see over time. So, yeah, so that's, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of new books in psychoanalysis. And, um, you know, I, sometimes I, I mean, I hear from people sometimes they're like, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we use it in our, you know, the institute training, et cetera. And I'm like, great. I'm so happy about that. I mean, it really is such a, a cool resource for, um, you know, for, for candidates, you know, and people interested in the field and, you know, the sort of clinician that you may never meet. Um, you know, if you like an interviewer's style, they're going to bring you a certain kind of interview and you get to have an experience with the, you know, with, with the writer, with the analyst, um, that gives you a, if the interview goes well, you know, it's an, it can be a very, it can be kind of intimate. Um, and I, you know, definitely, you know, prefer, I, and I prefer a conversation, right. To, I think with my, with the people that, um, I interview that it's a converse, it's more, ends up more of a conversation and nicely relationships have grown in, in some instances out of it. Um, out of those interviews, um, people who are really felt like I, connected to and there's people you don't feel like you connect to <laughs> and, and the interview is you know it just stands it stands alone um but certainly you know there have been some people that I've had uh, in fact I mean Christopher Bolas is largely responsible for my being in Rome uh in some ways I mean aside from my own love of the city it's interesting I mean, yeah, interviewing him I really got you know, I, and interviewing and talking about the interview in the aftermath, you know, like whatever, the back and forth, the lead up. And I knew that he taught at Sapienza, the university here uh, of Rome. And he, I said, oh, I don't know when this was. It was like nine years ago. I said, who do you know? You know, any analysts there? Like anybody, you know, I should maybe have dinner with somebody or something. And he said, yeah, 
yeah, of course. And give my call my friend. He made an, an email introduction to Vincenzo Bonominio, who is, I mean, just a, a super important friend. And I just um, wrote with him his introduction to his his book, which is published in in English. So there's all this translation, which I did not do, but I helped him with the introduction. And you know, he's been a you know, I mean the foundation for me here in Rome and the idea of building more of a life in, you know, two places. I mean, I have to have colleagues, I think. Um, even if, you know, my Italian is, you know, not as, as, uh, as up to speed. Um, it's, you know, to go and to co- listen to conferences, et cetera, and to be with people. Um, and so it's Bolas from that interview that he introduced me to Vincenzo and then Vincenzo and I became very close friends and still are very, said dinner three nights ago. Um, and isn't that interesting? I never would have really known who to talk to here in, in, in Rome had I not, you know, been hosting, um, and took the chance <laughs> to nervous wreck to interview, you know, somebody like Christopher Bolas, um, you know, and being, I think you, you probably know this also about me, you know, it's because of my, my training in this little, you know, modern psychoanalytic, you know, theory, et cetera. I mean, this is like interviewing people who they ha- they would say, well, you remember the IPA, the APA? No, no. It's like, click. <laughs> Sorry, click. Like we have nothing in common, you know, but there were people, of course, many people were really open and, um, and I, I got to, to know them and, um, you know, it, I mean, it opened up my world, my, you know, my, my complaint always about the, the world of modern psychoanalysis is that it's, um, a little, a little too, um, a little too ghettoized. That's the only word that comes to mind immediately, like, you know, for my, for my comfort. Um, and so I guess, you know, because of that, I mean, creating new books in psychoanalysis was, you know, it gave, it gave me something that I needed. Um, How did it come about that you created it? <laughs> well, it came about is a weird story. So I was, um, had a bunch of friends who we had a share house. It was the old Saul Steinberg. Remember Saul Steinberg, the you know, graphic designer and artist, you know, the New Yorker's view of the world, which like started at ninth Avenue. It was on the cover of the New Yorker. And he was like friends with Jane Jacobs, et cetera. He had this house that was a mess and he was dead. And I think he's buried in the backyard. I'm pretty sure he and his girlfriend and his cat. And, um, anyway, so I knew somebody who was trying to like, you know, get a bunch of people together to rent this house like year round. It was really this rambling, you know, half heated mess. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, for sure. I let, let me see, you know, let, let me, I'd be happy to do this. And I love a year round place, et cetera. And so the person that was, um, coordinating things is someone named Alan Salkin. And at the time, Alan was a reporter, a culture reporter for the New York times. Um, and he called me one day and he said, call this number and say, yes. I mean, he's just a real <laughs> particular kind of pain in the ass and in a, in a good way, but he uh, it was like, call this number and say yes. And I was like, 
I'm not, you know, giving up my first born. Like, what is this for? And he just like, he's like, just do it. And he hung up. <laughs> it was intriguing. And so I called and I said, hi, my name's Tracy Morgan. And I've been told by Alan Salkin to say yes. And it was Marshall Poe, who's the creator of the New Books Network. Marshall Poe, who ends up, I think, I think he was, I get this wrong, it's close, but he was Anna Fishson, who was the second host that came on the on the new books in psychoanalysis. In fact, her dissertation, somebody important in her history dissertation. Anyway, so, so I call Marshall. I say, yes. He says, oh, great. He's like, so um, this is what we're doing. And, you know, we're going to have a program. You know, we'd like to have a, you know, amongst new books in archaeology and new books in anthropology and new books in philosophy and new books in critical theory. We'd like to have new books in psychology, to which I, like, froze. I remember where I was. I was like at that little French place on Spring Street. It doesn't exist anymore. Like right by the train, like that little, they, they you know, little petty force. Anyway, it was, I was just sitting in the back having a coffee. And I was like, now I said, oh shit. I was like, I'm really sorry. I said, that is just not, I really feel like I don't understand psychology as, as much as I understand psychoanalysis. I said, is there, um, is there a chance that I would just, do new books in psychoanalysis because I that that's that's all I could really do from my heart. And he was like a smart guy. I think it was the Institute for Advanced Studies or something in Princeton. Like he was just like, oh wow, I can't believe we didn't think to do a channel in psychoanalysis. And he's like, sure. And I said, great. So um, so we'll do it. <laughs> and and that and that was it. And um, and then, you know, a few months later, I don't know, I, I bought it the same, I still use the same microphone, this old road podcaster, white ceramic thing. It's really nice, actually, and attached to it. And so he, um, so, you know, he told me how to do the technology. And um, I was just looking around for a book and something caught my eye. And um, it was this, this book by um, Hendrika, hmm, Freud, Hendrick, she speak Halberstadt, oh, I forget, she, anyway, she, Hendrika Halberstadt, Freud, anyway, Freud was her last, believe that or not, we began with Freud, and it was a book, Electra versus Oedipus, and it was looking on a, a book um, of sort of metapsychology about, you know, sort of enmeshment and intimacy, mothers, daughters, um, you know, kind of like, it, like has the the theme of the piano teacher, you know, that Isabelle Huppert or the uh, Michael Haneke, the, that film or the novel, Yelinek, right? It so has that at the, like somehow that was at the center of it. And I had just read, I had just been in Austria and I had just gotten more acquainted with the work of Yelinek. And I was like, oh, and somehow this book showed up. And so the first interview, which I just love, was with somebody from, um, not actually related to Freud. She's like, I said, so any relation? And I think she says something like, you know, there's a, a there's an auto mechanic shop down the street uh, here where I live. I forget, she was in Belgium. And she's like, it's Freud. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I right. It's, there's a lot of Freuds running around. <laughs> and so she claims that she's not related. But that was, yeah, that was the, the first one um, that I, that I, the first interview that I did um, you know, and, uh, 
uh, and I'm so happy that it was, it just somehow is meaningful, even though she's not related to Freud, that it was the Freud, <laughs> the Freud name <laughs> sort of, sort of kicks it off. Um, and that, so that's how, I mean, it was really, um, you know, happenstance. And then I, then a lot of work from there, I began to go to division 39. I began to do things that I would not do. I go to division 39 conferences or go to, I don't know, like the APA or somehow. And then, and then I began to meet people who helped me meet other people who, um, you know, at the time in the profession, maybe it was like, trying to get people to talk to you if they didn't know you or didn't know your advisor or your supervisor or your analyst, you know, it's like kind of weird. I was really like a stranger in a strange land, um, at the time. And this is before the, the advent of Dustin Bahagen. And, you know, Vanessa was only when I went to the first Dustin Bahagen meeting and I was listening to people talk about like, you know, the IPA and the APA. And I was like, what is all this? or APSA, sorry, APSA, I really, like, didn't even know what these things were. Like, I knew from history, you know, what the IPA was. But, like, it just, I just came from such a different, you know, you know, to quote Johnny Mitchell, different set of circumstances, you know, it's like, what? And I didn't understand what people were upset about. I really didn't. I lived in another world. And I've, I've now, I know about, I know about this other, these other worlds, but I, I had lived for a long time in a modern analytic world, which I did not, which was, you know, had a lot going on in it, but it did not, but I didn't understand the, the, the other sort of psychoanalytic worlds. I knew the authors, I knew the work, but I didn't understand sort of like the sociology you know, the politics. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I was the only person at the Dustin Bahagen meeting who was like, oh, I was happy with my training, but I'm really concerned about the field. And I remember like, I felt like such a weirdo when I said that, but I was like, but it was true. I wasn't going to, you know, make up a story. I was like, Oh, and I was like, what are you guys? Well, wow, this sounds really bad. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, how did I, I guess I, you know, I, I miss this. I mean, I ended up in a modern. Yeah, you skirted it. That's great. <laughs> I, I really like without, without even you know because I had a modern analyst without knowing that I had a modern analyst when I went into analysis when I was a you know itty bitty you know just post teenage person. I was like, uh, you know, I didn't know who I went to. I just wanted somebody who I felt they could talk to. You know, like <laughs> I didn't know about analysis or anything. I just was like, I need to talk to somebody. You know, and it just happened to be. Um, this, you know, somebody who was a modern analyst and how weird, you know, I could have, you know, gone another, other, <laughs> had somebody slipped me another number <laughs> said, I need somebody to talk to. I would have, you know, I don't know what, where I would have ended up, but it's interesting to think about how these sort of accidents, quote unquote, take you places. Will you talk a little bit about modern psychoanalysis for people who may not be familiar? Are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, something just went a little off. No, I've got Wi-Fi. That's good. Uh, Will you talk a little bit about modern psychoanalysis for people who may not be familiar? Sure. Um, I'll do do my best. Um, Let's see. Um, Uh, you know, the school of modern psychoanalysis, um, 
grows out of the thinking of uh, a man named Hyman Spotnitz um, and also um, his uh, supervisee slash patient, patient, I think actually, Phyllis Meadow, um, who together with a whole group of people um, uh, founded the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies um, in New York City. I think it's 1973 something like that. But Spotnitz um, <laughs> was one of these kind of, uh, he's very vaudeville, no, not vaudevillian. He was very Borschbeltian um, in his style. And um, he uh, was at, he went to Boston Latin grammar. It sounds like he was like a street tough. It always sounds like he was like, you know, like little rascals, you know, like kind of getting into trouble on the street and then, you know, but he was like smart. And so he went to Boston Latin grammar and then I think he went to Harvard and then he went, you know, it was, uh, he ended up in Berlin, I believe studying um, and became a neurologist um, and came back and wanted to train uh, with an interest in curing, with an interest in curing schizophrenia. That was his interest. It's different than in listening to the unconscious or, you know, sort of, um, listening to dreams. He was interested in curing schizophrenia. So he, um, he went, you know, the only, he was in New York and uh, one of the only games in town, you know, was, uh, the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. So we went there and he was, um, supervised by Nunberg, um, who was kind of a big, big swinging dick in those days, I guess. And, um, he made his final case presentation and they failed him. They didn't like what he was doing. So he never became an analyst. You know, so that's interesting. Um, it was a lot of people like that at the time, right? Like Sullivan, you know, like they didn't, they kind of were interested in doing what they were doing. And Spotnitz's interest in curing schizophrenia, like led him places that, um, that, gave him a lot of ideas about technique and ideas less so about metapsychology to some degree. Yes. about metapsychology, but also really about technique. And I think that, you know, modern, you know, modern psychoanalysis, you know, started out as um, a theory of technique and it's a, if with the idea being, if the ego is weak, right. If there is, if, if the, if the person is fragile, if you can't ask, a person why without them attacking themselves why would you do something like that why did you do something like that why do you think why do you think that interests you etc and the person ends up feeling defensive and unable to to speak freely what do you do like as an analyst because a lot of analysts ask why 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 you know oh why do you think that's the case why do you think you feel that way why do you think these are all questions that Spotnitz would say are directed to um what he would call the ego right and and that and if the ego is is friable if it's weak it can't um can't handle it and it stops communication and if our goal in analysis is, you know, like, let's say for the patient to say, spontaneous would say, oh, just tell me everything. You know, like, it's such an absurd request. It's almost, it, it makes me laugh every time. Tell, well, just say everything. No, no, just say everything. Go ahead. And, you know, because it's, po- it's impossible and because it's, it's, it's such an incredible invitation, um, he began to think about, yeah, but what is it that we do as clinicians that stop patients from speaking. 
And how do we work with patients who um, are so prone to turning against themselves, to attacking themselves before they even get to what they're thinking? So frightened of external attack or that they will be attacking. And this is also what Spotnitz would say is that the aggression that we all you know, have and need and, and make use of, um, for some people, it's um, more, more bottled up and turned against the self, that the attacking, I don't know, the self is a flimsy word, but it's, a, it's, a, it's colloquial, right? So, uh, you know, the attacking yourself rather than having feelings toward others in the external world who frustrate you. Oh, it must be my fault that you don't like what I've cooked for dinner. It must be something wrong with me. It must be... And Spotnitz sort of looked at this and thought that's the death or it's the closing and locking of the door <laughs> of free speech, of sort of free association. That turned turn back to what's wrong with me. I screwed up. Must be something wrong with me. It's okay. I'll just, I'll just kill myself. You know, like that kind of like, I know I'm a terrible person. And so he began to think about how do you help people who have that tendency to say something else? And he kind of with, with uses use the term modern, she uses the term all the time, like progressive communication, which just is a way of saying, like, is the patient saying something new? I think Lacanians think this way too. It's like, is the patient saying something new every session? Or is this just like, is the same, is it the same old hat being repeated? And what do we do? And this is the question I think every analyst has, no matter what our backgrounds are, you know, it's like the patient's repeating themselves in, in the session, not just in life. But in the session, what do we, how, how do we intervene in ways so that something new can be said? Something that can't, you know, every, if every speech act is the, you know, sort of erasure of, of another set of words that could be spoken or the, the, um, the sequestration of another set of words that could be spoken, what do we do to, to make um, new speech possible? And so this theory of technique is really about, you know, patients protecting sort of the more fragile ego so that more things can be said. You know, a patient, my supervisor, Paul Geltner, always gives this example, and I just think it's so clear. Um, you have a patient who's very agoraphobic, and I don't want to leave the house, and it's very dangerous out there. It's like <laughs> a lot of us are dealing with this post-COVID or COVID, whatever it is. I don't want to leave the house. I can't come into session. I'm going to end up getting COVID. I can't da, 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 da. But the agoraphobic person is the example that Geltner uses. And he says something like, you know, so eventually you start to say to the patient, you know, you're right. It is very dangerous out there. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking that uh, it is best to stay away. And uh, to stay indoors. And I was wondering, have you thought about um, putting some extra locks in the door or something like that? Right. And the patient's like, you're crazy. The patient will say, potentially, you're kind of crazy. I don't go that far. You don't? Well, no, I don't have to put extra locks in the door. I just can stay in the house. Well, all right, I recommend, recommend that you do it. So when you accept the patient's sort of way, they don't have to fight against it. And then new things can potentially be said. You don't have to defend your position um, or defend your, your, you know, your, your, uh, your 
defend your defenses. <laughs> you don't have to defend your defenses anymore. And I think Spotness was just really incredible at designing ways of joining and mirroring that allow people to have to feel the other the other side of what the defense won't let them feel rather than offering an intellectual explanation. Well, you feel this way or you won't let yourself feel, you know, right. And <laughs> thank you. I understand it well, but the feeling remains. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like we're just that emotions precede language. So what's going on emotionally in the parts of ourselves before there was language that have to be worked with in order for there to be new language and new symbolization? I don't know if that, that's just, <laughs> sorry, there's a long way of saying it. I don't know what I do. I'm trying to work on like a four sentence version. I haven't come up with it yet. Oh, so we're not pressed for time, so you can it's great to oh, have I, a more full, <laughs> full explanation. I love, I love that, but I have a one o'clock. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Very annoying. So yeah, so that's that's some way of uh thinking about it. I mean, some of that some of that work. Um and let so it's not particularly interpretive. Um I mean or, but spotness would say, whatever you can do to resolve the resistance, you'd have to do it. You have to find out what that is so that the patient is able to say something new. So that's, um, so it's pretty creative. There's a lot, there's a lot of room to move within that about what, you know, what, what do we do to help patients to say everything? Well, that's what I loved when we started Dustin Bohagen and we had like our peer supervision group and we started like things like working groups and peer supervision. And it was so nice to have you there and like people from different orientations talking about what they would do, you know, with, with a certain case. Yeah. Well, it's eye-opening, right? Isn't it? I mean, you know, to, I mean, certainly New Books and Psychoanalysis has been, you know, in that way also for me, really eye-opening. Like, you know, I, I often ask people, so what do you think is you know, effective clinically here? I mean, depending on the book, like what would you say is the clinical, what is having clinical efficacy here? You know, I'm interested in because of the modern you know, thinking about technique, what technically are you doing? You know, and, um, and what I find is a lot of people have, a lot of analysts seem to have the idea that um, having new thoughts about or understanding the patient more deeply does something. And I would agree with that. But then there's the extra, you know, the extra added on my end is, and then what do I do with that? And it's, if it's, if, if interpretation is foreclosed, which it's not for modern analysts, but if you foreclose it, you say, we're not going to interpret. It really, really has to get you to thinking about what do I do then? Like it's sort of like like an like any like an art like an an art experiment. Like okay, you can do everything but use the color you know colors blue and green. What do you do? Different things happen when something is is uh, you know is is uh, taken off the table. And so since early in my training, interpretation was kind of off the table. You know, so that I mean. It doesn't have to be. I certainly, you know, also know a bit about how to interpret, but it's interesting. It's that it's off the table. It's like, 
how to uh, how to how to proceed when the patient isn't saying anything new. But of course, I've had it. You know, I've had a long, long, long modern analysis. So how do I know? I know from it's in my bones. You know, certainly it's in my bones. So yeah. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to be sure to mention? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I just want to say that, that talking to you, the sun has just come out. I'm so happy. Oh, good. Then, yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> okay, bravo. Um, I don't know. I feel, you know, kind of, I mean, I'll just say that, you know, there's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've been doing this work for, I think, <coughs> I don't know, maybe some, so I think I'm coming up on 25 years, which shocks me. You know, it just is kind of surprising. Um, yeah, and that's um, it. Just does it does surprise me that it's been this has been a part of my life. This way of working and being. Um, I wish I could say that there's something I'm working on writing. There is something I'm working on writing, but I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> so how about that? Just say nothing. Um, as opposed to everything, there is something I'm, I'm working on. Um, and, uh, that, that does, that does interest me, but I, I tend to be a shy writer. I don't write a lot. I wrote one piece on working with psychosis in the private practice. And, um, uh, you know, I was like, okay, that's enough for 10 years. <laughs> I read. I wish. I wish I was more prolific, but I just yeah. Um, but you're very much action oriented. Like you've done so much activism work. That's true. Or your analytic work. And, oh, that's yeah. true. Yeah, and I yeah, I've been very involved at CMPS with, um, you know, for the last six years, we've you know, a group was created sort of to think about why no black candidates, you know, like, and so that's really been on. Um, something that I've thought a lot about my background before being, you know, entering the field of analysis was as an historian and my, um, I'm you know, all but dissertated, whatever. And my, my concentration, you know, was history of sexuality and, um, history of medicine and African-American history. So I have, you know, been, you know, working and thinking about, um, you know, at CMPS where I'm on faculty, um, asking the question of, you know, why, what, what are the obstacles? What's, what's, what stands in the way? And it's, um, it's been, it's been harrowing at times for sure. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's, uh, it's just been, it's, there's, there's so much, I, there's so much I could say. And I, I really want to be kind of careful to be honest, like, because I, I want to see changes at the Institute and, um, I see some, um, but I'm really working to create other kinds of changes that I think, I just think that this, the, what's interesting, well, what's interesting to me, I'm very, you know, the point of like, why, why aren't black candidates coming? Like, you know, Patricia Kirby, she would say, well, look, look, what are we serving on the menu? And I'm like, I absolutely agree with that. But I also think that, you know, there's a, 
there's a an, there's either an embrace of the concept of reparations or there's not and there's so much overlap within you know sort of Kleinian thinking about reparations envy <laughs> love guilt reparations all of that and the the need to make reparations um you know and and what does it look like to make reparations right for slavery um at psychoanalytic institutes and at my institute what is it what is it going to take for reparations a concept that many many analysts hold near and dear to have meaning and to be applied to you know like what what at, what attitude and actions have to be taken so that black candidates will come you know we we the white institutes it seems to me need black candidates we have nothing new to say to each other trust me also in new books and psychoanalysis i know there's not a lot new i don't think coming down the pike within psychoanalytic writing i'm just going to said i mean i you know sometimes we're writing in order to like keep current with our in at our institute or you know we want somebody to see us for christ's sake i totally understand that like we're alone in our offices with patients like you know what do we do with our you know exhibitionism so i understand that we need you know that part of part of why we write is for someone to see us because we're so invisible in so many ways all day long you know eight hours a day of, of invisibility and taking it on the chin. You know what I mean? <laughs> of course you want to, of course you want to be seen, but, um, but it seems, it does seem to me that black candidates um, have something else to say um, about, about psychic life in America for sure. And um you know, it's a, a good life being analysts in many respects, right? We have to take time off when we want, we work for ourselves, you know, depending where we live, we, you know, charge decent fees. Um, you know, people tend to call us doctor, even if you're not, I'm not. <laughs> Haha. But, you know, these, it's, it, it, seem, it seems to me that, you know, the, the reluctance to, of a, of a field that, that sort of, prides itself in some ways i think of being able to the analyst's job is to put themselves into the other's shoes the other's unconscious to experience you know what however you want to put it it's you have an experience of the patient and part of our work is that we are listening in certain ways and hearing certain things and we're willing to be impacted by the patient and imagine what it's like for the patient to be the patient and what does it mean when there's sort of a, 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 it's like a forbidden place to go for white analysts to imagine what it's like to be black in America. I mean, it's sort of like, sort of, how could it be <laughs> that analysts don't want to let themselves think or imagine their way into that? Um, that, I think that's just really basic. You know, it's like, I I, I mean, we all have a million of these examples, I think, you know, who were in America a couple, you know, with the murder of George Floyd, but these conversations that came up. And I remember one man said to me, um, not an analyst, just a, you know, white guy I know, he just said something like, well, you know, I just can't imagine what it's like to be black in 
and driving in a car and being pulled over. This is a person who has a degree in literature. I said, you mean your imagination won't let you imagine something? You won't let yourself imagine that? It was so perplexing to me. And then to think about the field of psychoanalysis and what does it mean in, in, in an American context for the refusal of allowing, of, 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 of imagining, of emotionally imagining black life in America? And the ways in which, you know, uh, black candidates are shut, are shut down from bringing aspects of experience into the classroom. You know, I'm not just talking about CMPS here, but you know, I'm in touch with a lot of people at different institutes. It's, it's like chronic. And like, it, if anything, and in, in analytic training, more than like a training in, geom you know, like in math or in, in history or literature or anything, you bring aspects of yourself into that supervision, into that classroom, into that work group, into that, you know, cartel, whatever it is you're doing, you're bringing parts of yourself into that. And if you have to keep parts of yourself out that you might bump into and want to put forth about one's experience of, of uh, sort of perpetual, you know, knowing what it's like to be hunted, what, how, do you, how do you really get the full benefit of analytic training? I mean, if all these white people in Dustin and Bahagan were complaining about having to leave parts of themselves out the door, right? I mean, that was a big thing that we talked about. So much of what we were experiencing with patients, people couldn't talk to their supervisors about erotic countertransference. But like, and just so, so it's inhospitable for white candidates often enough. But when the field can't imagine when it was so hard to imagine why black candidates don't come to our institute or other institutes, it, it's, it, 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 it says something about a resistance that's so profound and an avoidance of some feelings that are so uncomfortable, apparently, that the 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 job of the the job of the analyst in some ways maybe the heart of the job of the analyst is like understanding or trying or you know whatevering our way whatevering our way into the other you know and with the other a, a resistance to 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 thinking about why no black why so few black candidates in America just it it's you know it's a uh, it's maddening, heartbreaking, and and disillusioning. I think we started off talking about disillusionment, but we weren't recording then. <laughs> so. So should we stop there? I know you have a patient. I know, I do. And I should, okay. probably, I should probably make an espresso. <laughs> do it. But it was really good to talk to you. Yeah, thank I mean, you so much for chatting. I love your format. I just want to say, I really, I can feel your format. I can feel what you're doing, and I love it. So interesting to be to be interviewed because I do feel what the interviewer is. Well, you know, sort of what's the the sh the contour um, that's on offer 
practice. Um, so I feel like I've pretty much just said everything. So that's, that's for, for, for an hour of talking. I've pretty much just said everything that I could say. So, all right, my dear. Thank all you right. so much. Have okay. a good day. Oh, yeah, you too. Onward. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Tracy Morgan. For more, check out New Books in Psychoanalysis, as well as the Center for Modern Studies. That's cmps.edu. And now, a song, Lunacy, from the album and the film of the same name, a collaboration I did with Carl Abrahamson. You can find it at our Bandcamp, highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. mystery and power. Come more creative and writers reason why the artistic world can't ultimately accept Taliban, indeed the final, across the world blow. It is a quality that manifests most, spiritual and physical, and perhaps a worthy statement of intent. Thanks again, I look. Writes. Everyone carries a shadow. Documentation. Continues to unfold. Precise confrontation. Conference. Still, I could never avoid thee. To forget nothing and illustrate that would be who we meet, whatever is. A spiral, a serpent's, the passions of the soul. Alcistis and Peter, electricity and elementals. Atonal. There are no existential safety nets. Imagination, not only two, both seen while. The reflected light of the moon isn't brutally revealing, but faint, suggestive, ocularly conducive to Occultism. Eyes. Just gotten to the point. The cool. That is communal.
tricks and impressions of association and fantasy. This reflected light is also conducive to beauty. In anything, too. States. To couples. That it lessens contrast and thereby inherent dualisms. This has been well used in our own recent of the things that, like-minded, culture through the development of photography and cinema, in which lightning techniques an entire scene have the music lyrics, I believe, we, seen, science, very seldom focus on harsh, directed light, but rather on subtle nuances of reflected light, repetition that matters, but rather the space that is created by the difference. You see this concept, tasteless. Everything is because the sun is simply too bright to watch. We have become accustomed to watching the moon instead. We cherish what's visible and didn't know existed. We know anything regular is a for the first time I'm telling flipped in and how much I need and comfort to the human mind. In the case of the moon, literally so. It's not just a fairly familiar orb in your every move and the sky. We literally see the same side of the full moon most every time we watch it. The full moon in my time, I'll wrap my heart. Always displays the same side to us as it revolves around its own axis parallel to its revolving over in the sense. His habit with around the earth. And that takes just about the same amount of time. No wonder then we're as ears and minds. Fascinated by the dark side of the moon as we are in coming out of hers ourselves. A photograph front of the cafe. The Landau is pulled by two horses. A here were no draw. Coachman and a footman, both in livery, are sitting my typewriter and activity, in fact, in the two. I also noticed, as the human gaze has gradually drifted from the the microcosmic over the further or to allow for things to time, you see, and millennia. 
We have also downsized our capacity for, example, a friend bigger contexts. For the sake of official announcement, the golem and the dancing girl. Symbols in mythology used to consist of the most powerful and potent. Great cut up. Boggling stuff that helps solidify or godly shape. Today we're sadly striving for a brutal demythologizing. Same lines. Processed through technologies that allow neither longevity nor potent symbolism. Where is the expression of it? Associated with mythological moon today of life itself. Whether still or moving, particles inside this plastic, buzzers for my, of the tape recorder. After, figures, pattering blindly behind, enhance their lives. Not as tourists, who, fashion, all cultures have revered. Nine force in joint ventures with the matter. Dust, perambulating provender, masculine sun. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule. The Germanic language has the moon as masculine and the sun as feminine. I, four the discovery of the mother's masculine force, and the sun, a warm, life-giving covering of her own failings, and the facts of perception. Climate of the psychic, come back and put what, and are attracted to each other, and overflow. I am amazed have more like each other and sort dead. A key to mythological strength is the use of symbols within the stories told. No wonder that the sun, print, and the moon have been such strong presences in human stories that most often retell sexual tales. We deplete and death and rebirth mysteries into the evening events of art talks and music is and goddesses to the sky attributed to the stronger forces out there in space moon goddesses abound one of the first occurrences of moon divinities is actually a male one. The Babylonian god, Sin. But from there, and we tend to, on, it's been mostly goddesses. Evening. Seems much better. And can become. See it remarkably in the body's fascia, a coherent web of 
the is to be. The interior of every, and the less it is embodied in the biology, boys have penises, and a group, strength, that is constantly situations in individuals conscious life on dichotomy male female a mark of the primitive mirror image when we begin to break connective tissue to be she imagine